Uh, I'd like to welcome you, ladies and gentlemen, to the uh, morning session of the second day of the Gold Standard Institute. And um, you've already uh, met the uh, first speaker this morning. Um, he's doubling duty as our uh, audiovisual guy, along with our audiovisual girl. That's how participatory this group is. And uh, Rudy Fritsch, um, I'd just like to say a few words about him. Um, he was part of that group of people that gathered in Zambute in Hungary uh, when uh, Professor Fekete was giving his gold standard uh, lectures in the beginning. And there were very few of us. Uh, I mean, we ended up in Hungary in this monastery where it was being held. And there we heard uh, about Bob Barrick and Carl Menger and the marginal theory of money, utility theory of money, various things like that. It was, it was quite interesting. And, um, and so we got to know each other there. And here we are in Canberra a, a couple of years later, um, speaking before a much larger audience uh, on the same topics and same issues. Of course, it's time is rolling forward. And Rudy's, uh, one of his extraordinary abilities is to explain the, to apparently the unexplicable. <laughs> and uh, without further ado, uh, here's Rudy Fritsch. Thank you. Well, a nice introduction. Well, this is my real talk. The other two are kind of impromptu. And um, when this session was being planned, I was kind of beating myself, what am I going to talk about? Should I repeat what I said before? Should I expand on it? Something new, something this, da 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 Professor Fekete solved this problem for me. He suggested that my topic will be first principles of gold as money, and in small letters, gold, the most misunderstood metal. I said, wow, that's wonderful. That's exactly what this is all about. Gold is at the heart of the issue. So I made a few notes and uh, did a little bit of uh, work on it. And a couple of quotes that helped to get this thing going. First, here's a quote. In the absence of the gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. There is no safe store of value. Now, does anybody know who said this? Alan Greenspan, Mr. Bubble Blower. Isn't that incredible? Then there's another one. It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there will be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Henry Ford. Henry Ford. You guys are up to speed. This is great. So that's what it's all about. So I, I started these notes. And of course, I said this already. The branches are complex. The root is simple. Don't believe a word I say. Empowerment versus giving away our choices. In other words, understanding that bloody well 2 plus 2 is 4 and don't try to confuse me with it. So my first note was, what is money? Well, this morning at breakfast, and I don't know if the scars show, uh, Philip roughed me up a little bit. He says, Rudy, we must have a good definition of money. We don't have a definition of money. I said, well, money, you know, uh, means of exchange, uh, store money. No, 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 that's what it does. But how do you define it? Well, how do you define a car? Well, it's a means of transport. No, 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 boats a means of transport. So is an airplane, and all this stuff was going on. So he goes out to have a smoke, and he goes out for some fresh air. And I, and I say, oh, wait a minute, I got something. And I go hustling up. <clears throat> so I come up with this thing. It says the definition of money. 
that which serves, or perhaps best serves, I don't know, to extinguish all debt. That which serves to extinguish all debt. Now think about this. If I go and buy something in a store, I, I want to buy this, this thing, and I pick it up, there's a debt, whip out my money, extinguish the debt, pay it. So that works pretty well. And then, if I bore a cup of coffee and I return the cup of coffee, well, that's not really money because a, a cup of coffee will not extinguish all debt. But money, hopefully, will extinguish all debt. And some of the guys already came up, well, what if, you know, 20 years from now you want to extinguish your debt, your mortgage on your house, and you need more money? Well, obviously that means that whatever was being used as money is not very good money. It that did not serve that definition very well. So the thing to do is, what will fulfill this definition? What best serves to extinguish all debt? And right off the bat, this eliminates paper money, because paper money is debt. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, how the Fed prints money, and maybe just a little quick refresher. On the balance books of the Fed or the Reserve Bank, uh, the liabilities are notes, and the assets are debt, the treasury notes, and they balance. And they go out and buy a new treasury note, and of course they create the money for it. So what's behind this so-called money is more debt. So really when you pay your, your uh, thing you just bought with cash, with paper money, with legal tender, you're transferring the debt. The debt is being transferred. It's not being extinguished. And when we talked about real bills, some people said, well, can't real bills work in this current environment? And I said, well, yes and no. In a way, they, the same principles can come up, but the underlying element is still debt. Paper money is debt, and it can disappear very quickly if someone ever decides to pay back those treasuries. Now think about that one. 100, or 100 billion or trillion or whatever, some humongous number, is the treasury sends over this, this bond and these guys print up the money or, or push the button on the computer, whoop, there's the money, send it over to the treasury, they spend it. Now if they ever pay off this treasury, it goes back to that computer and it has to disappear or the books won't balance. And that is what a truly deflationary collapse is all about. So anyways, I give this out and uh, you guys think about this. That which serves to extinguish all that is money. And of course, from this can come what is the best money, which will serve best to, do, to accomplish this purpose. And of course, all the things are going to point to gold. So, uh, I already talked about some of the aspects of gold as money. So I, don't, I want to kind of go back and revisit the root, the fundamental Austrian atom of human action, Robinson Crusoe on his island, because a lot of people scoff at this. But I hope to show you that major laws of economics, true laws of economics arise from this. You know, you take an apple and it, oh, the law of gravity. Well, if you want to build a jet airplane, which is one of the most complex things people do today, you better take this into consideration, no? The law of gravity, law of aerodynamics, um, strength of materials, if the engineer designing this airplane doesn't understand these things, he's going to have problems. And of course, the people who create the monetary engines don't understand these fundamental rules. They're going to have problems. The wings are going to come off at the wrong time or the wheels come off. And that's what's happening today. Robinson Crusoe by himself on his desert island, no need for money, 
but does have a need for store of value. Now, it doesn't have to be money, obviously. It has to be the actual value, the crop he grows, he has to save it for the next season, and the water he saves, and the f whatever. So let's just <clears throat> take it up a notch. And his new buddy comes on, this guy, Thursday, Friday, Tuesday, whoever it was. <laughs> now, there's two people on the side. So they have a choice. Either they're going to live by the two rules which underpin human society, and Mr. Richard Maybury put them very well. He said, do not encroach any other person or their property, and do all that you promise to do. If they live by these two rules, they'll get along. If they don't, they're going to have problems. So let's assume they, they become buddies and friends, and they start to live together and share the work, whatever it takes for survival. So we, uh, let's just, I'll throw up a few simple examples, kind of arbitrary, but it'll show an important rule coming up. Let's suppose their routine on a certain day is go fishing, catch a couple of fish, and then go out and gather a bucket of berries. It doesn't matter what it is. So the routine is this. They get up, they're in a cave somewhere, they're a shelter, and the, the fish pond is 10 minutes walk over there, and the berry field is 20 minutes walk over there. So. Normally, Robinson Crusoe goes out. Oh, here we go. And he walks out to catch some fish. Ten minute walk. Okay. Thirty minute. Catch two fish. Whatever. I mean, works out roughly like that. Then he walks back. Ten minutes to get back home. Right. To get back to his cave. So. Or let's make it even rounder numbers. Let's call it 15 minutes. 15, 50, 30. One hour. Two fish. That's how it works out. So along comes this other guy. And, uh, well, okay, let's say the other task is to gather berries. So let's say this is a, I don't know, 10 minute walk. Or, <laughs> I hate, I'm not a mathematician. 20 minutes. Walk. Uh, 20 minutes, one basket, and 20 minutes back. So there's walk, so 20, 40, and 20, 60 minutes. One hour equals one basket of berries. So that's, the, that's his productivity on his own in this task. And again, I'm looking at the root. So along comes uh, his buddy Thursday, Friday, and they decide, let's do this together. So obviously, they both walk 15 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, another 15 minutes, one hour. Okay, two of them fishing, so maybe they now catch four fish. It took them two hours to catch four fish. And then they do this little walk, and so on and so forth. Now they've got two baskets. So again, the productivity didn't change. Productivity is a big word on a desert island. But let's say they do something different. They say, you know what, Rob, you go and catch fish on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you go and gather berries. Well, the walk is the same. He spends an additional 30 minutes. So he spends one hour, catches four fish, right? So 15 plus 15 plus 30 plus 30, that's one and a half hours. So I don't kind of run my room here, but I think you'll see the picture here. 
four fish. Four fish, two hours. Four fish, one and a half hours. They just saved half an hour. This is called the division of labor. And it arises from the second simplest possible example, two guys on a desert island. And of course, the same thing will happen here. He's going to spend you know, 20 minutes walking there, and instead of 20 minutes for one basket, 40 minutes for one basket, and investing a little more work. Yeah? OK. So does everybody understand this? Division of labor? If anybody forgets about this, on the big scale, there's problems. And growing division of labor, of course, today it's even worse than that because some people, can't, nobody can learn to do everything. Lurking in here is another law of economics. Suppose uh, Robinson Crusoe is a real good fisherman, like he can tickle the fish and he knows the spot, and it, in an hour and a half he catches four fish. But there guy's sort of a plot somewhere. No matter how hard he tries, he only catches two fish. Whereas the other one's pretty good at picking berries. He's got hand skills. He's a good berry picker. Well, there'll be another increment of improvement. And of course, this is the, there's another economic law in that. And um, the, uh, the example of a brain surgeon with excellent fingers washing dishes. Now, when he washes dishes, he can wash dishes half the time as somebody else. But if he can hire someone who's a klutzy dishwasher at 15 bucks an hour and he makes 150 bucks an hour surgering, he's better off surgering and hire someone who's half as efficient as he is because he's still ahead of the game. And again, this is an economic law and it applies to countries. And this is why international trade is so important. Australians may be really, really good at mining gold or they're just lucky there happens to be gold under them I don't know, somebody in Indonesia may be really, really good at growing rice, or maybe they're just lucky because there's lots of water the rice needs. So it makes much, much more economic sense for Australia to dig gold and Indonesia to grow rice and swap. They're both ahead. Now, governments don't get this. Governments don't get this. And for example, in the US, in all their government wisdom, they said, let's turn corn into fuel, ethanol. <laughs> First of all, this is totally insane because fuel is much more, uh, I'm sorry, food is more important than fuel. But also they could simply go to Brazil, buy fuel from them. Brazilians are good at growing sugar, much lower cost, and they could import this stuff and send something out there. So governments don't get this. And another economic law that emerges from this simple, simple example. So it's very important to look, you don't, don't stop at this. Well, I don't want to spend too much time with Robinson Crusoe, but if it gets bigger and bigger, there's a whole family. Still hasn't changed. Swiss Family Robinson, they still don't need money. And the time comes when a society is complex enough that, you, first of all, you start bartering. I mean, the two guys in their cave are not bartering. They're just sharing the work, and a family doesn't trade, really. But if suppose there are two tribes or two families, one on one end of the island, one on the other. They're kind of separated. Every once in a while, they get together and trade. Maybe there's a coconut grove over there, and there's walnut trees at this end, and they swap walnuts for coconuts. That's direct trade or barter. Now, where barter becomes, uh, is not efficient is where there are many, many more uh, players, because 
if you, for example, the fisherman wants to trade his fish for eggs and goes to the egg farmer, the chicken farmer, so I don't want fish, I hate fish, I want apples. Mm -hmm. So he's going to have to find apples, trade his fish for apples, bring the apples back, trade them for uh, whatever, eggs. So that's when money starts to arise. Money, or, or primitive money, or fundamental money, whatever you want to call it, is that which people trade for indirect value. It has value because it helps them get what they want. So they trade for this commodity which is monetary and everybody starts to agree to this. So yeah, well, let's all, you know, coconut beans, uh, we all believe coconut beans are good because everybody else accepts them and trade for what they really want, indirect trade. And the same thing with savings. <coughs> Instead of everybody having to store everything, they simply store the monetary good and then use it to trade for what they want. Now some people say money should, is really just a means of exchange and forget the other stuff. Well, I kind of disagree. Uh, theoretically, yeah, if, if I want this thing and I earn, first I earn money, the means of exchange, then I take this, trade it for, uh, no, that's not right. This is what I want. <laughs> I earn money, but I can't keep the money because it loses its value. So I go out there and trade it for the store of value, stick it in my pocket, accumulate. At some point, take this store of value, trade it back for money, and then go out and trade this money for what I really want. So you see, it gets very complicated, unless money is a good store of value. So that's another thing we talked about. <clears throat> means of exchange. Means of exchange means horizontal movement. Uh, not in time but in space, one person to another. Vertical exchange or vertical change is through time. Good money, of course, uh, which serves to extinguish all debt. Will, this will serve to extinguish the debt today and tomorrow and a year from now, 30 years from now. Comes to gold 2,000 years from now, just the same. So, what else did we talk about? Well, we talked about tradable or marketable, um, marginal utility of these commodities. You know, the measures of money, we talked about the guy in the desert where his um, value scale changes and water is most important and then the canteens and then the camel. In any situation, it's the same thing. Money serves all these top level requirements so its value doesn't drop if it's good money. If it's not good money, of course, all bets are off. <coughs> now, we, it, I said in this definition, um, that which best serves to extinguish all debt. So let's just kind of touch on debt. What is debt? Well, it's an exchange of present goods for future goods. Present goods for future goods. And promises are future goods. And the real stuff right now, you know, your bird in the hand is a present good, two in the bush is the promise. So clearly, if you swap uh, stuff, future goods or promises, you're not extinguishing the debt. I mean, if you know, just a little example, Martha had my hard disk drive, and said, oh, Philip, there's a debt. Now, how do you resolve it? She gave it back to me. Because she took the hard, hard disk drive and copied the videos off. Okay, credit extinguished. But what if she came back and said, really, I owe you one hard disk drive, piece of paper. Okay, <laughs> that hasn't extinguished the debt, obviously. It's a promise. So she can give me some money. The thing is worth 200 bucks at the store. Is it extinguished? No, it's gone to the Fed because it's their money. So, 
And that's a little bit esoteric on the small scale. It doesn't really matter, but like Phillips did in his good video, it's legal tender, and it, it kind of works reasonably well like this, but in the, big, the bigger your picture is, the worse it gets. The bigger your picture, time horizon, or exchange. I mean, exchange, talk about Australian money works here. You go offshore, you have to exchange it, cost money. You, go some, you come back, exchange it back, cost money again. That's just like having to trade for this, so you can trade for that. So you can use that to buy what you want, and then you trade it back again, more inefficiencies. So even as a horizontal exchange of value, it's not a very good, uh, very good thing. Whereas gold, of course, and I think somebody, professor or somebody was talking about gold points, which are simply the transport cost to take the, the value from here to there, minimum possible cost. That's as good as it gets. Is it perfect? No, there's still a cost, but it's a heck of a lot less. I, I went to the airport, and supposedly Australian money is um, uh, but still below U.S. dollars, close but below. Well, I, got, I took out 150 U.S. dollars and I got 146 Australian back. Mm -hmm. ah. <laughs> so that's quite a bit, you know, I don't know, four or five bucks on, uh, on $150. So and then if I went back, I'd get hit with this again. So if I swap this money back and forth a few times, gone, all gone. So what kind of money is that? Okay, so I think, well, let me, let me just talk a little bit more about economic fallacies because uh, Austrian economics see through this. The uh, broken window fallacy, uh, the cash flow clunkers fallacy. Oh, no, no, the broken window fallacy. They're the same. Uh, Bastiat 200 years ago figured this out. And the big picture of economic fallacy is people look at the action right now and they miss the big picture and they miss the long-term picture. So somebody goes out there and see, kid throws a rock, boom, breaks somebody's window. Oh, that's bad, you know, that poor guy's got a broken window. And some smart ass comes along and says, oh, well, the glazier will be happy, he'll get paid 200 bucks to fix the window, it's not that bad. Well, yeah. So it is, it is true, the glazier will get $200, fix the window, so there's $200, and he pays out he buys some glass and some putty and whatever, and these ripple out into the economy, then they just kind of disappear. But what happened to the guy whose window was broken? Well, he took $200 of his money to replace what he already had. So what happens is he's now $200 poorer. Rippled out, poorer, really, <coughs> once the glass is fixed, nothing has changed. What people don't consider is he had this $200 and he was saving it to buy his wife a present, a coat. And if somebody did not break his window, he would go out and buy the coat and give it to her. Now, the coat, $200 ripples out to the tailor, to the you know, leather merchant or whoever, same as the other side, but society is $200 richer because there's now someone with a new coat. And of course, $200 doesn't seem like much, but same thing cash for clunkers. And then we're talking, I don't know what the number was, how many <coughs> billions of dollars thrown away so that valuable stuff is crunched up. Not as valuable as a new car, obviously, but still usable and worth something just so somebody could get the benefit of building it. And society is that much poorer. Economic fallacies. It's awful. So there's another economic fallacy. Uh, well. I, I think I touched on this as well, the value theory and Marx's mistake that labor adds value. 
and it's so easy to refute this. Just take three chefs. One chef is a good chef, takes apples, uh, flour, sugar, some spices, makes apple pie, nice apple pie, sells it value added, oh, labor added value, yep. And the other one is a klutz, has no clue, he takes these apples and sugar and flour and spices which have intrinsic value, or at least they have their own value, makes an in inedible mess, value is being destroyed. Labor added value destroyed, negative. Or someone spends hours and hours making a mud pie. Well, I don't care how much effort or labor you put into making a mud pie, it's still worthless, so zero return. And again, this is the fundamental fact. Somebody did a calculation on the Soviet Union economy. Now, the Soviet Union was perhaps the second greatest power on Earth, or military the first, or who knows. And they calculated all their material inputs, dollar value of raw materials, coal and grain, and oil and uh, you know steel ore blah 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 and the output which were stuff like ladder cars and they figured out they had a total negative output in other words they destroyed value in the world market so again economic fallacy and yet people don't want to see this negative uh, negative value so value comes from the beholder value is like beauty now give me another example that smelly nuisance in the North Forty that pollutes the water. Uh, some smart guy came along and figured out that if you heat this stuff up, you get kerosene out of it. Well, kerosene is valuable. Suddenly, that smelly nuisance is transformed into a resource of value. No labor was done to it. It still sits there. It's still the same smelly nuisance. But the gas stuff that came off was bad shit. It was poisonous, smelled bad. Stay away from it until some other smart person came along and discovered gas. Oh, we condense this into this liquid stuff called gasoline, use it to run engines, and guess what? That smelly nuisance is now the world's most uh, valuable commodity, consumable commodity. And no labor was done to it. In fact, labor is an expense. And this is a bit hard to swallow. But another way to look at it is if you've got 150 guys with shovels digging a ditch versus one man with a power machine digging the same ditch at the same time, much, much, much less labor went into it to create the same value. And in fact, this is a gaining productivity, and it's along the lines of the division of labor, uh, productivity gains, capital. Of course, there has to be capital, there has to be a machine, and so on and so forth. So, how are we doing for time now? Yeah. Okay, well, 25? Okay, I, I'm going to get into the, some of the stuff about, let's, let's go through this in a hurry because we already touched this. Why is gold good money, i.e. the best money, high specific value, unlike coal or, or, or oil, which are very heavy and so on. It's fungible, unlike diamonds or other precious uh, jewels, it's precious stones. None of these could be money because they're all different. They're not fungible, they're not exchangeable. Indestructible, it's not perishable, it doesn't corrode. It doesn't, uh, you know, when the, the some societies use the cocoa beans, cocoa beans, chocolate beans as money. But in four or five years they became worthless because it's kind of dried up. Greatest stock to flow. Now, okay, here's a good one. This is a feedback mechanism and we talk about feedback mechanisms. Anybody in this room not set a thermostat on their wall? I think everybody has. If you set a, a thermostat for a furnace to heat your house, you have touched 
feedback mechanism. And it's negative feedback, and if it only runs the furnace, it's a monodirectional feedback. And it's bang, bang, on, off. Well, temperature drops, thermostat cuts in, turns on the furnace to bring it back. So it's negative, it's opposing this trend. Temperature goes up, shuts it off. Temperature rises, well, that's it. The furnace is off, the thing can't do anything. Unless you have a bi-directional thermostat, which cuts in again and then it turns on the air conditioner to bring the temperature down. So now you've got a band, a desirable band, goes lower, furnace, higher, uh, air conditioning. And if it's pretty sophisticated thermostat heating system, it's proportional. So a little bit of cold, temperature drops a bit, tweaks on the heat. If it still goes down lower, tweaks it up higher, temperature starts to rise. You know, now it's a proper servo mechanism or feedback mechanism. Negative feedback, bidirectional, uh, gold standards full of them. Now if negative feedback does this maintaining stuff in the band, what does positive feedback do? Well, if the temperature goes up, it turns on the furnace. <laughs> it's getting even hotter and hotter. Or if the temperature goes low, it turns on the air conditioning. We don't want that, do we? Well, not in this case, obviously, but in the case of money, we do. Money works on the positive feedback principle. The more tradable the commodity is, the more people will trade it. And the more people trade it, the more tradable it becomes. The more people hoard it, the more of it there is, and so on and so forth. Positive feedback over many thousands of years prove beyond any doubt that gold is the best money. Silver comes close. Largest stock to flows. And of course, the lowest spread, or it's most marketable. If you, if you get quotes for silver prices, you'll see you know, the, the bid and offer and this fair amount of spread. You look at palladium, another precious metal, big spread. Gold, very tiny. Okay, and then we talked about the deflationary thing as well. Well, uh, <laughs> like I said, uh, you can't deflate a balloon unless it's being blown up, and you can't deflate a money supply unless it's already been inflated. So I don't really have to go back to that again. There's other, now there's some other myths about gold that it's just a precious metal. And of course it's not because of its stock to flows ratio. That makes it unique. Or it's an industrial metal, but it's not a very good one because there's hardly any industrial use. Silver is a better or more popular, more in-demand uh, industrial metal. Well, guess what? Silver is a lot less expensive than gold, and the silver-gold ratio shows that people value gold for some reason. The barbarous relic. Or gold is jewelry. You know, the, uh, the Gold Association promotes gold as jewelry. Well, jewelry is one step away from money, and it's a way of maybe staying under the radar screen because uh, gold coins, bullion may be confiscated, but I doubt if government's going to go around ripping people's jewelry off. Of course, you never know. <laughs> um, anyway, I guess the final thing about gold as, as, as uh, misunderstood, uh, the th I talked about how much there is, there's plenty of it, and that to say that there's not enough is a myth. To say that it's not flexible, it's actually a good thing. That's its strength. And the real bills and the other instruments, like the gold bond, take care of the swings and demands. Uh, okay. I think one of the things that, and maybe Philip will talk about this some more, that it leads to peace and prosperity. Uh, instead of shenanigans and people putting their mind to how they can 
sneak away with more of other people's money on their gold. There's no such thing. The uh, people put their energy, their thinking to truly productive enterprise, maybe making a more efficient gold mine and earning the money. There's only three ways to get money or to get wealth. One is to have it bestowed upon you, a gift, charity. Uh, dad gives his kid uh, something. Or to trade for it, earn it, trade for it, your, your labor, or produce a product that somebody will actually value and buy and pay you enough to cover your costs. Or thuggery, hit somebody else over the head and take their money. Or voluntary taxation until you don't pay and then you find out it's not so voluntary. And uh, my bank accounts were frozen, which was a pretty strong incentive for me to conclude my disagreement with the government and say, oh, you're right and I'm wrong and here's the money and please release my, uh, my assets. So I'd like to kind of uh, open the floor for questions, and maybe we've got a little bit of extra time, because I, I do find that's very important, some audience participation. Yeah, please. Yes, um, just, just a question there sprung to mind as you were talking. Uh, the, the inflation of the 1920s that occurred prior to the uh, Depression. The inflation, uh, yes. Yeah, presumably, well, from my understanding, of uh, the US is on a gold standard during yes. that time. Yes. How could that inflation okay, good question. I'm going to answer that. Um, do we have a, a rag to wipe this sucker? Ah! Nice big rising bench. Yes, sir. Is <coughs> <laughs> that coffee still? <laughs> Have you seen? Yeah. Gold. <laughs> this is the, the heart of the matter, gold. But the, the United States was on a partial gold standard. And Professor Fekete has come up with the definition of this. There were three components. The gold component. The real gold component. and the funny money, I mean fiduciary money component. And fiduciary is printed money. And the way it worked was 25% of the US dollars were backed by gold, 25%. So for every, for every ounce of gold, which was valued at $20 per ounce, or rather every uh, bill was defined as 1 20th of an ounce of gold, because this was the root it was legal or permissible to print, you know, uh, another, uh, until you get to 25% uh, back. How much? Some, uh, 80, okay, whatever. So you can print 80 of these suckers. 80 for 20, okay, that's fine. So what happened was, uh, Mr. Benjamin Strong used this opportunity, this window here, printed somebody, pumped it up, gave his scoop of whiskey to the stock market, and then came up against this limit, which said 25%. Legal limit. And I guess they respected it, because they stopped printing. And then all this stuff started to collapse, because they could not keep inflating the balloon once stopping inflating it goes away. Now what the Gold Standard Institute 
up there promotes is an unadulterated an unadulterated gold standard this has got zero only gold real bills okay so there's no place to inflate and then there is no place to deflate because this does not deflate. Gold does not go back to the mines, please. Of course, it can go into hiding. People say, well, I think I'm going to take my money and hide, put it in the backyard. Gresham's Law is the one, Philip, that good money, uh, this place is bad. bad. I'm under, well, I mean, in circulation, but in your pocket, the good yeah. money, this place is the bad. Uh, under a fiat system. And it happens under bimetallism when silver and gold were both money, not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with that, but because the government defined the ratio. And as soon as the natural ratio changed, one was better than the other, and people melted this down for the other, and blah, 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 so it collapsed. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does answer that question, but it brings up another one. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You've, uh, with your diagram there, the real bills section at the top. Yes. Um, and given our uh, financial industry's propensity to find ingenious ways to uh, uh, make a quick buck without actually doing anything, yes. could the real bills component of that financial system be turned into some sort of financial shenanigan that would enable inflation to occur anyway? They were. The answer is yes, of course, they were. That's why we're here. But if enough people, you know, what did uh, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson say? The price of liberty is constant vigilance. So we don't allow that to happen. And, you know, it's hard for people to understand the honesty and the trust that was out there. I mean, Mises wrote this tremendous book, and he really assumed that promise of gold from the government is as good as gold. How can it not be? Until it's not, because it's not the same. And the same thing here. You walk into a bank today, and you want to open an account. So you have to talk to the manager. Well, not very good odds of that, but you may get to the account manager. He says, I'd like to see your books. Before I deposit my money in your bank, I'd like to see your financial statement. What's going to happen to you? <laughs> you walk into the discount house, walk to the counter, and say, I want to see your portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> Which one do you want? I'm going to buy and sell? It's all there. Very open. And of course, the merchants who deal with this directly have a good nose for this. They understand the business. And if it looks fishy, there's too many bills down on whale blubbers. Wait a minute. The world doesn't consume that much whale blubber. How come there are so many bills? They stop circulating. They're gone. They, they're, they disappear. And there's a thing called blackballing. If a, if a merchant ever fails to repay his bill in 91 days, he's toast. He's bankrupt. And him, his son, his grandson, with the same name, will have zero credit. They cannot possibly operate. It's self-policing. But yeah, there's, there's opportunity for chicanery. So there's everything. Except today, it's all chicanery. And back in those days, 99.9% .9 of it is honest. I mean, how many people here have actually met a gold bar with titanium in it? Oh, I don't see any hands. So that's the best. Does that mean you shouldn't own gold bars because somewhere someone might have contaminated one with uh, who knows what? No. 
So any other questions? Can, yeah. can I just, I'll just answer that? I mean, my take on this is it's because the government guarantees the banks. Now, do you think that, um, I mean, the average person doesn't care about the quality of the law portfolio of NAB, but if the government said, we don't guarantee these banks, you're on your own, guys, and if, you know, that bank goes under because it's overly, you know, lent too much money to people that can't afford it, do you reckon people would be, you know, just a little bit more cautious about what their bank's <laughs> doing and what they're investing in? Yeah. And demand an audit. And demand audits, but, but be looking and be looking for people who are going to give proper ratings to the banks and be assessing the book find and be very interested in whether it's ten percent deposit or twenty percent deposit that's you know, I mean that's why I think people are in this sort of fantasy land of, you know, oh, they don't have to worry because it's government will worry yeah, about it for uh, so one second, you're next. Uh, these things are super liquid and in ninety-one days they turn into gold. So in our opinion, and this is an opinion. Just as there are banknotes that can be backed by physical gold, there can also be banknotes backed by real bills. There don't have to be. Now, there does not have to be banknotes. People could love their gold coins around, make payment with it, but banknotes, if they're trustworthy and honest, and a good promise, and you really believe in them, they're not more convenient. Same thing with this. If you build a banknote with this for backing, well, people say, yeah, but what if everybody demands their gold all at once? Well. Within 91 days, that bank will have all its assets back in gold. So at worst case scenario, in 91 days, they could pay it off. Furthermore, this is a huge market. I, I kind of drew it big because it's gold. But real bills underwrote world trade prior to World War I to such a large extent that it wasn't until the 1970s or 80s that world trade caught up to the same value level. Tremendous, tremendous amount. So if, if there's a, a run on the bank, they just go out, discount their bill, and pay on in gold. So their total assets also balance, their total liquid assets balance their total liabilities. Now, the, the problem with the bank uh, started when the government started to slip bonds in here, which are not liquid assets. They're long-term, their price fluctuates, they may or may not be sold, and started to hide them. And instead of the civilians or the merchants looking at the books, it was bank inspectors. Who pays the bank inspector? Right. The bank or the government. So, yes, sir. That deal that Brom was talking about, whereby each bank issues national currency rather than its own private currency, is the institution of central banking. And the deal is there that the banks don't have to worry about their own private uh, standing because the national government is guaranteeing it. What the government gets in return is the ability to borrow essentially infinite money. Now, central banking used to be outlawed for centuries in medieval Europe, and it was finally forced on European powers by the pressure of constant war and the need to raise large amounts of money in about 1600, late 1600s. Yeah, I'd like to add something on that, what David sure, just sure. said about the constant war and the pressure. When you look at the history of money, it's, it's a reflection of power. And that's really what it is, and the search for power. Um, the professor, one of his favorite books is The uh, Economic History of the United States from 1914 to 1945 by Benjamin Friedman. And I began reading the book, and it's, it's extraordinary and revelatory in what is actually, because we, we deal in a fiction, uh, uh, an assumed fiction of what we're told and what we believe and, what we, and the assumptions that we make. And, 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 and uh, Benjamin Friedman, who was uh, the vice president of uh, City 
uh, well, was Citigroup back then, and a, a very well-respected banker, and a, certainly a man of his times. He talked about the changes that happened in in the in the history of um, modern history in terms of money uh, after 1914, and he uh, on one issue he talked about the 90% tax. All right. Now we all know about the 90% tax, but what he said where it came from. It didn't come from the soak the rich, which we all, 90% tax, soak the rich. It came from the belief that the need to marshal large funds for war was absolutely necessary. All right? So you have, again, as David pointed out, constant war pressure that ran throughout history. And this is one of the, the, well, you know, I think that, that we need to talk about because mo money does not operate in a vacuum. It's not a, it's not a science like mathematics is. It deals with human nature, human ambition, human things like that, and it's a little, it's complex. And human, you know, Robinson Crusoe got a little, you know, the Swiss family Robinson got a little more complex when they went to war with their neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. I asked you before this one, maybe the same question, but yeah. maybe you can discuss a little bit. I have found the answer actually, I thought through it. Um, let's say in the island, yes. there are one million Robinson Crusoe and one million Fridays. Uh, we have a economic growth, a GDP of, let's say, 6% growth. For this growth, year. okay. And we have a population growth of Robinson for 2%. And everyone doing well and... Oh, wait a second. You said population growth. Of 2%. Okay, I didn't talk about population growth. I talked about money supply growth. Okay, so the let's say we have population growth of 2%. Okay. Two in the okay. And uh, everyone made money. I increased my wealth by 4%. Yes. Um, let's say we have a gold standard. And yes. And real view. And we, through the season, we uh, distinguish the, uh, extinguish the, the, the real view. And everyone got their money, and most of the people want gold coins. Do you need to increase the money supply of gold by four percent? Okay. No, you don't need to increase the money. Actually, uh, that's an interesting scenario, and you're assuming that they can't mine gold to increase their money supply because they're on an island. Of course, that's not how it works in the whole world. Uh, I think I talked about what Australia, Australia is good at digging up gold or lucky to be sitting on gold. So they create this gold, and other people will gladly take it and send them food or whatever they need, or, or, or uh, I don't know, you know? Now, if the money, if the, the growth in the money, so there is a growth in the money supply. To me, if there's zero growth in the money supply, all it means is the value of the money increases even quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No? So there'll be a slight deflation. Yeah, is that, is yeah. that the And then uh, the slight deflation will be a feedback loop, because let's say I don't want I want gold, and that guy got two two houses. He might sell me the house. So sure, th this is what will happen, and so people are even more happy to hold gold. And I can see another result of this that the the, the national uh, the natural or the floor on interest rates may be a bit higher because if you're going to give up your gold and your gold is appreciating at four or five percent or six percent per year, you don't care. You you don't you don't want to buy a bond for another, unless you get substantially more. So there may be an increase in the interest rate, but then maybe not. I mean, this is and that's kind of a hypothetical question. Uh, somebody on the, on the other side, in the back there? No? Yes? Maybe? Yes, sir. I'm sorry if this might be a very dumb question, but... There are no dumb uh, questions. The ones I haven't heard about. creating wealth 
out of labor. So, um, I'm sorry, say that I didn't mean to. It's about creating wealth out of, say, labor. So, say, for example, uh, the pioneering of the Wild West in the States. The States was a country with nothing, and then people arrived in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. So people went into the middle of the Wild West, they built a farm, an orange grove or something, and then and then through their labor, so it was worth nothing in it initially, and then they come to sell it to somebody to buy it. So where does the money come from to buy that? Is it the capital that existed in gold in Europe and it was mined at 2% of the year and it's always fixed? I mean, how do you create yeah, that? Well, okay, you're, you're talking homesteading. There's some, something undiscovered, untouched, and then somebody goes there and starts to make use of it and improves its value. Now, whatever labor they put into it is just expense. It's their time, their energy, it really means nothing. But if somebody else comes along and says, there's some raw land over here that I could uh, homestead, well, this guy's already built a house and this and that. Well, this is more, maybe more valuable to him. So again, the, the value is in the eye of the beholder. So they may make some kind of an arrangement. He says, you know what? If you sell me this, I'll give you that, and I'll work for you for 10 years in bond to help you with your farm. Or I'll trade my herd of cattle, which are on the range, for this. Who knows? And, and, and be careful, because money is not wealth. <coughs> we never said that ever, and this is a big confusion. Money is not wealth. Wealth is that produce, producing farm, which the, the, that's <coughs> trying to define this. The farmland itself, which is productive, is is fixed capital, or it represents fixed capital. A taxi that you drive to earn money with is fixed capital. A machine that produces rapid grommets is, is fixed capital. A rental property is fixed capital. The stuff that moves through it is mobile capital. And of course, that's where the real bills are used to finance this movement. And gold and gold bonds used to finance, help finance the fixed capital. And those things do represent wealth. Money is simply the means of extinguishing debt, even if it's immediate or long term, or a store of value because people will accept it and give you wealth. If you from like the, the, uh, the Chinese have been sending wealth, flat screen TVs, uh, probably pens, this thing, you know, the pants I'm wearing, in return for bits of paper with colored ink on it. And now they've got a trillion of them in the bank, and what the heck are they going to do with it? So the money in their bank is not wealth, and they've got a problem. Um, but say you know, somebody comes along and says, well, I will pay you so many dollars of silver or something, which was real money in those, in those days. So where did that silver come from? Is that just from well, a natural it, mining? Absolutely. Where else? Silver? It has to come from mines. And of course, it's trend. And I mean, you're cutting into a, an established economy, and, and these, these are just a natural, so no economy is static. Um, Mises used the term the equal or evenly rotating economy. He, you know, there's a, a, an equilibrium theory, and there's what he called evenly rotating. So that means it changes, but it's always the same. Now, I, hard to explain this in a, in a second, but let's say you, you do the same thing every day. You get the same salary, and you go to the store, and you buy the same goods, and you go back, and this, and everybody does that, and we're all rotating, but nothing ever changes. And then somebody come, comes along and breaks the glass, oh, something changes. Well, when somebody buys a, a farm, something changes, and the economy compensates for all this, and it's all linked together. So it's hard to cut into the middle of it and, and, and pull it out. 
uh, don't know if I'm really answering your question. Maybe I didn't fully but understand. But it basically came from capital that existed elsewhere, and the existing money supply grew at a small amount because it was linked to buildings. But the value of it grew based on the real wealth of the world. There was the value of it. That which money will buy, that real wealth out there grows through productivity, through farmers improving the land, through growing cattle, through nature. I mean, nature grows apples on the trees, and apples are worth money. So wealth is generated all over wealth, and money simply chases that wealth and used to, to deal with it. Is that okay? Do about deflation. I mean, in that example, there was a guy who spent one hour and got two fish, and let's say there was one ounce of gold in that system. And he threw his you know, creativity or whatever makes a fishing net or something, turns his one hour into four fishes. You don't need two ounces of gold for the sun to appear to make that system work. So the price of fishes in terms of gold drops. And that reflects the productivity that he's just introduced into the economy out of his own labour and effort. Well, that's a good point. I didn't touch this because who knows where to cut it off. But if Robinson Crusoe sits down and knits a net, he's not going to eat that net. It's not consumable. It's not something he's going to, you know, he, he can't actually do something like that. But he will use this net to catch more fish. So instead of having to try to, you know, catch them by hand, he now has a tool, a capital, piece of capital. And how did he acquire this? By investing time in it. He took the time to weave the net. And now, instead of catching two fish, he catches 20 fish, and you know his life is better. But isn't so that Marx is saying that labor adds value? No, it's the capital accumulation that adds value. But if you've got a guy that dreams up an innovative way to make a net that catches more fish, that's not labor. That's yeah. That, that's the, the guy who oh, you know, figured pure, out pure manual labor. That, that's the way to, the guy who figured out how to heat up crude oil and make kerosene out of it. He didn't do any labor. Somebody else went and did labor to do the actual work. But that labor is now an expense. I if you could snap your fingers and turn crude into, uh, what you would call it, fuel, that would be the most efficient way. Perfect. But right. it doesn't work in the real world. Just as, just as a Sorry. point, it's my belief that Marxism, as a theory, was a dysfunctional response to the dysfunctions of capital is coming through the banker system out of England, which formed a, it was a critical component of commerce in the last 300 years. But in some respects, and we're, we're, we're seeing this in our 300 year evolution of the system where it's gotten further and further away from real money, which it uses as base, has become extremely dysfunctional, and we are about to experience the collapse of that system. Marxism, in my opinion, was an intellectual theory that was born out of schnapps in trying to figure out what was going wrong with the world. But I do not believe that the refutation of his theory or the value of labor, because labor has a value, not the value that Marx gave it, but it has a value. There's a lot of things that have value in our world, and it's very complex. And But I think Rudy's right that in, in a sense that in this complexity of what we call commerce, that if you go to the root of it, which is money, money is so essential to any kind of any kind of functioning in a complex society that when you start messing with money, it's like messing with the oxygen in the air. It's like messing with the corpuscles in your body. You are inviting a catastrophe. 
And I think that's what the Gold Standard University Institute is, its, its purpose is. Okay, I, I just like it. Do you have a few more minutes? Uh, no, we're out. Okay. Uh, in that case, I'm going to take two minutes. Uh, yeah, all these things, Marxist theory was wrong, but it served someone's interest. It's, oh, there's a theory, that's what we're going to do. Keynes theory was wrong, but it served someone's interest. And it became an excuse. It became an excuse to do what they, whatever they are, want to do. And this is the whole point of it. And of course, it is complex. And of course, labor has value. You, you can't have stuff without labor, but it's not the measure of value. It's, you know, value is dependent on the buyer. But if you see a, a rock out there, and you see a, a beautiful carving, normally the carving has lots of labor put into it, and it's worth more. That's fine. It's just, don't misunderstand that it's the cause of the value. The value is in the eye of the perceiver, and he appreciates this value added by that labor, then it works. And if, if an entrepreneur takes this uh, smelly nuisance and spends a certain amount of money and so on producing it, and nobody buys it, mm. it didn't work. Of course, it did work because people did buy it. So, okay, maybe the last one. Really, I just want to add, people often object to the amount of gold setting a limitation. Right? There's not enough gold, you can't grow the economy. There's an interesting fact the British Empire ran on 100 tons of gold for 200 years preceding. And that empire got a lot bigger on that 100 tons preceding. They didn't have access to the Spanish gold, the Spanish gold from, from Central America. Uh, 100 tons was fine. We produced 2,000 tons a year. And they ran an empire that included India and Australia and Canada. And Come on up here. Come on up here. No, time's out. Time's out. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Rudy. Thank you.